Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Greg Grandin, who is the author of a number of prize-winning books, including The Empire of Necessity, Slavery, Freedom, and the Deception of In the New World, which won the Bancroft Prize in American History, and Fordlandia, The Rise and Fall of Henry Ford's Forgotten Jungle City. Grandin is a professor of history at NYU and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. We will be discussing his new book, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Greg Grandin, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on. The End of the Myth is a terrific book, which I highly recommend, although I listened to the audiobook rather than reading the hard copy, so I don't have my, <laughs> my usual pile of notes written down about it. Um, why don't we start with the basic idea, what is the myth that has ended? Well, the myth is the, the myth of the frontier, and the frontier itself is, symbol, is a symbol for a larger element of American history, and that's expansion you know, both the social experience of expansion, which was built into the United States even before its founding as a nation, um, the idea of moving west, the idea that, that being able to kind of pull up stakes and head, uh, and head out onto the frontier would solve uh, social problems, would, would prevent a concentration of wealth, would, would dilute what we what later would become class conflict that would um, um, disperse extremism and factionalism that would uh, uh, allow for a unique kind of a U.S. politics that elevated the political center while marginalizing the extremes. It was a social experience of expansion, and then then there was the the mythology of expansion, the way that that experience was turned into an ideology and there's different there's different expressions of that but in the in the late 19th century Frederick Jackson Turner an historian at the University of Wisconsin uh, gave a paper at a, at a Chicago World's Fair in 1893 and and he, he talked about the significance of the frontier in American history and that kind of coalesced and consolidated a lot of different diverse and dispersed ideas about what it was that it was about the United States that was exceptional. So that's the myth. And I could go talk quickly about why it's ended, but or, or, or we could leave that for another question. Uh, no, please, go ahead. Why, why has it ended? Well, the, the impetus for the book, the, the, the prompt for the book, was when Donald Trump announced for his presidency in 2015, and he, and he, and he said he was going to build a great, great wall. <laughs> on the southern border, and it struck me that the opposition of those two things, the open, limitless uh, frontier symbolizing the United States as moving out into the world, as Frederick Jackson Turner would have it, um, that kind of central icon of American exceptionalism, was being upended by Donald Trump. It was being supplanted by, the, by, by a new national symbol, and that was a border wall. And uh, as that wall came to symbolize, whether it gets built or not, all of the different expressions of Trumpy, what has become Trumpian nativism, what some scholars call a race realism, a sense that um, the United States has to take care of its own, it has to close its borders, 
I thought that opposition between those two things was worth exploring. And the argument of the book is that is that what explains Trump, you know, Trump could either be understood and has been understood either as something wholly exceptional to U.S. history, an unprecedented violation of a long history of openness and tolerance and, and fitful progress, um, or the fulfillment of this bloody history of settler colonialism. I, I think that you can't really, I think that that opposition needs to be situated within this larger context of, of, um, of U.S. expansion and, and, and what is the end of the frontier, the, the, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, the collapse of the free market uh, economic growth model, the, the deepening of inequality and the consolidation of social immobility and hanging over it all, climate change, a real sense that the United States has, that the world is hitting, uh, uh, hitting these new limits has, has, um, has led to the collapse of the, of the viability of the frontier as a national symbol and the rise of this new symbol, the wall. So the argument is, is basically very simple, that Trumpism is what happens when the empire ends and when the frontier closes. I, I think it's very well said, and it's very well said in the book, and I don't disagree with it, but let me ask a little bit of a devil's advocate sort of question here, and I imagine you agree with me that Trump is not completely new, that opposition to immigration, that uh, borders and racist violence at borders, uh, as described in the book, uh, is not new, and that Trump has actually escalated several foreign distant wars, uh, put more troops in more bases in more countries, etc. Uh, so Trump is, is not a brand new reversal of, of American expansionism. Yes, absolutely. And that's what I meant by saying that that opposition between these either something entirely new or the fulfillment of a, of a deep-seated brutality and nativism, uh, it doesn't, doesn't obscures more than it reveals. It the U.S. has all of these expressions of Trumpism, the violence, the nativism, the, all of the brutality and extremism that's involved in moving forward in the world, uh, was always present. But, but as long as, but, the, but that's, the, that's the key to the argument. As long as the frontier remained open, as long as the United States was able to vent that extremism outward or marginalize it at the, at the fringes, then it never came to national power. I mean, certainly we've seen nativist movements like Trump before, right? We've seen uh, uh, George Wallace, we've seen Father Coughlin during the Depression. You know, you can go back and and um, you know, but but extremism of of the right wing kind of the of the of the kind of white the deep white supremacism that is inherent in the foundation of the United States, a nation founded on chattel slavery, a nation founded on ethnic cleansing, a nation founded on dispossessing a third of national territory from Mexico. The white, that white supremacism, which was always present, was also always contained and marginalized at the extreme, as long as the frontier remained open, as long as expansion remain viable as long as politicians could point beyond the frontier and 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 say and 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 answer social demands with the promise of limitless growth as soon as that ended as soon, and and i i say it ended uh, you know that not in any one moment but certainly it was a series of the exhaustion of the neoliberal project the series of the exhaustion of the neoconservative project the exhaustion of 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 the of the limitless capitalist extraction model with, with climate change, as soon as that ended, 
and, and politicians can no longer use the promise of limitlessness to organize domestic politics. What is now Trumpism moves from the margins and takes national power. So that's what's different this now. And, and you're right. In terms of the second part of your question, there's no, there's, I mean, Trump just vetoed the, the vetoed an attempt to end the U.S.'s support for the war in Yemen. And uh, so, I mean, we could point to any number of ways in which Trump has just kept his foot to the, to the throttle in terms of deregulation, in terms of in terms of austerity, in terms of uh, um, the Republican agenda on every on every on nearly every level. And and the wall serves as a way to distract and divert and um, and you know because there's a way of thinking about the wall as as representing a kind of disenchantment with liberal universalism, you know, a more more honest way, because we have hit a limit. And so the wall is just a recognition of that. But it's its its own illusion, exactly in the way that you've just described in your question, because it allows the whole thing, it, it creates the illusion that we could keep going as we are, as long as we just build the wall. The wall is a way for Trump could t- t- to talk about capitalism, and it's pain, the pain and misery of capitalism without actually challenging the fundamentals of capitalism. The, the book has a, has a very interesting description of, of safety valve, of what a safety valve actually is, and of the various metaphorical uses, some of which uh, you clearly are, have just been endorsing in this conversation, as well as in the book. Can you, can you talk a little bit about this idea of the safety valve through, through U.S. history? Yeah. So the safety valve was, was an actual mechanical thing that was invented in the 17th century that allowed steam to, to be vented and, and, and eventually became, um, you know, technology improved and then it was used on, uh, on, on steamboats, on railroads, on boilers. And it moved into political discourse in the United States as a metaphor to talk about the venting of social tension around the 1830s. Um, and the point in the book, and everything I'm talking about could be understood in terms of metaphor of the safety valve, but I actually do talk about the specific metaphor of the safety valve in the book in one chapter. Um, the point of the safety valve is not that everybody, no matter what your position is, whether, say, in the 1830s you thought that um, workers should have the vote, or you thought that workers uh, you know, shouldn't have the vote, or you thought that slavery should be ended, or you thought that slavery should be reformed, it's whatever your particular political position, you could invoke the metaphor of the safety valve. Uh, in other words, expansion was the answer to every problem. <laughs> you know, and, and there was no problem created by expansion that couldn't be solved through more expansion. And that's the power of the safety valve. And just to bring it back to the United States again, when you when you think of what is exceptional, exceptional about the United States, and that phrase, American exceptionalism, has many different meanings and can be defined in different ways. One thing that is exceptional is that, that no other nation, and very, and frankly, very few even open and out empires had, was the privilege of being able to use constant expansion, first continental expansion, then expansion to war and all of the kind of missionary moralism and and that that's involved with wars on the War of 1898 forward, and then the expansion of markets, um, the, the idea of globalization. You know, the United States, it's been 
no other nation has so centrally organized itself around the I mean, early founders and second generation founders basically talk, talked about expansion as if it was a check, as if it was one of the checks and balances built into the Constitution. They, they openly understood that, that, that the United States could not maintain its, its small sense of limited government if it didn't expand. That property rights, this absolutist commitment to property rights and, and individual political rights, as opposed to social rights, was absolutely dependent on the United States' ability to, to move outward, to extend this year, as James Bond, as um, John Madison said. We're speaking with Greg Grandin, by the way, whose book is The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Uh, in in terms of expanding beyond settlements uh, to foreign wars, uh, we see racist violence channeled into foreign wars in the book, and we see racist violence brought back home and fueled in the United States by the foreign wars. Do do wars increase or decrease racism at home well they uh, both <laughs> because that's the that's the dialectical beauty of it right it's that, is that yes that every that the extremism and the trauma you know not even even more generalized non-racist trauma but certainly much of the trauma of warfare is is involved in the killing of of culturally and racially other people starting with indian removal going on through the Mexican-American War of the 1840s, going on through the wars of the, the, you know, the final pacification of the West, and the wars of the 1890s, and counterinsurgency in the Philippines. You know, all of those were profoundly racist wars, racist wars on the frontier. And and that racism channeled back and blew back in all sorts of ways that we don't have uh, time to talk about. But, but, but you, for instance, the, the, the Mexican-American War brought back a deep racism which infected what could have been a potentially radical free land that that started off with a quite egalitarian vision but became but became increasingly racialized and racist as time went on but that racism and trauma and extremism and brutality could be contained as well, could be basically rolled over into the next war as long as you constantly had the next war coming up teed up then 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 it didn't it didn't lead to a kind of breaking point or collapse domestically obviously the civil war was one major exception to this and i I discussed that in the book but but they but basically yes one war after another john quincy adams called it recoil right they you know the the blowback from 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 racist war on the frontier how it would affect political culture and bind the nation together. Um, jumping ahead a century, Martin Luther King called war a demonic suction tube that that um, that uh, that prevented the creation of a more egalitarian culture and a transcendence of, of a myth of of a rugged white individualism. And and it worked. You know, it worked up until about Vietnam and when it started to all fall apart. And, you know, it, the process is very complicated. But um, but but uh, one way of thinking about it is usually episodes of white supremacist extremism happened when wars end. The KK, second KKK was created after World War One. The white supremacist uh, new right after Vietnam. 
what you begin to see around the the catastrophe of post nine eleven foreign policy is even as the wars continue abroad, right? The United States is locked in this war of a war in which Yemen is just one front or one battle. Um, the, the ex- domestic extremism starts to take hold simultaneously. Um, the spread of border vigilantism begins uh, around 2005, around the time of the Abu Ghraib scandal. There's many different markers to index the moral and, and tactical catastrophe of the invasion of Iraq, but certainly the Abu Ghraib scandal is one of them. And around 2005, 2006 is when you saw the spread of the militia movement, which I don't know, we probably don't have too much time to talk about it, but begin to take over public debate. Not only do they spread everywhere throughout the country, states that have no borders, um, they take over Fox News, they take over the Republican Party, and and, and, and and that's the backstory to Trump. A lot of it was in reaction to the failures in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of the militias that came back from those failed wars uh, traveled to the border. Uh, some of them were older generation of ex-Vietnam vets, but they're the ones that said, and, and they're the ones that, you know, there was a split within the Republican Party between the George W. Bush wing that that wanted some kind of immigration reform, that the best way to move forward for the Republican Party was to was to marginally expand the Latino vote. And then there was the wing that that that, uh, you know, that looked at what happened in California and, and thought that if that happened in Texas and Arizona, the Republican Party would 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 cease to be a viable national party and and um, and went full on. Show me your papers. And that's the wing that that basically has has emerged and coalesced around Donald Trump. I'm interested in this question because I've seen other studies that have found that racist violence uh, escalates in the United States during and after uh, wars. Uh, And as you've just been describing, we see anti-Muslim and racist violence brought home by recent wars. Uh, But the the idea that's also prevalent in the book of the safety valve would suggest that someone might make the case the way to get rid of all this racist violence today in the United States is to channel it out into a, a good war on Iran or Venezuela or someplace. What, what, but you what? can't. Uh, that's the point. There's no more. Like that's uh, Barack Obama. Basically, you know, he inherited the catastrophe and he stabilized the system and he restored the United States in pragmatic terms. But he had he had lost the ability to use foreign policy to to channel the extremism outward, right? And 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 you could you could see that with with even with I think it I think that's one of the things that's very that's distinguished with Trump. There is like yes, he has Venezuela and 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 and, and he talks about Iran and Cuba and but but there's no realm of foreign policy that that do, that domestic politicians have that they could use to organize uh, 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 domestic politics to create a moral vision to point beyond the frontier. So that's that I think is what is Be- different because it's too discredited in everyone's eyes, or why? Well, you're right. We have 800 military bases. We ha- we have you know we're continuing to run all of these many fronts in the forever war. But uh, I think it's yeah. I think it's the I think it's it's moral utility. The, the 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 mission you know as 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 um 
you know, as Martin Luther King said, you know, of uh, of uh, the divine messianic uh, uh, mission of the United States that that the, that drove us into Vietnam is over. It's it's not, you know, I mean, even as Donald Trump runs these wars and expands them, as you said, he doesn't. He doesn't mobilize them in righteous or moral terms. It's just a kind of cruel, kind of petulant, we can bomb whoever we want and we're going to kill whoever we want and no one is going to stop us. That's a, you know, I think that's a a definition of American freedom that has deep roots in American culture. Freedom is freedom from restraint. But for for decades was, was, well, whitewashed or presented as some kind of moral or higher universalism trump is is that without with you know you know without the gloss and and it's just a it's just this kind of uh petulant hedonism that says we could do whatever we want we can we could drop more bombs and no one's going to tell it we could kill as many civilians as we want we could put kids in jail we could separate families we can drug them but are but are we out of danger of that, Greg Grandin? If uh, President Pence or President Biden or President who knows who uh, speaks far more morally uh, and hides the torture better and so yeah. forth, are we out of? So the- this is a question. This is a good question, and it's the question of methodology and the primary primacy of ideology versus material interests and and what is actually possible out in the world. It seems to me. That um, the world has changed. It seems to me that um, that uh, that uh, that the U.S. still has the foundations of primacy in many ways. Uh, you know, the the the, the number one is still the number one currency. Still control of energy markets. Um, still the military bases. But but uh, but it seems to me that the that that the that the that the, the mission. It seems to me that the mission is over. That that it can't that. That that um, I mean, the, I think the polar for a long time, at least for two or three decades from Vietnam, politicians from both political parties were able to were able to leverage the polar domestic polarization and use war and foreign policy to um, to to stifle the divisions, even as the war and foreign policy was worsening the divisions. It seems like we've crossed the threshold. It seems like Pence or Trump. Or I can't imagine any Republican uh, uh, restoring the mission, and and I think it's the same for Democrats too. I mean, uh, I think you know the Democratic Party is has is um, you know obviously there's lots of lots of specific issues: Israel, Venezuela. If you're in Florida, it's Venezuela and Cuba. If you're somewhere else, it's Israel. You know, but but it it seems to me that uh, the ability to 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 use foreign policy as a, as as uh, to create domestic hegemony, um, is 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 over, and 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 we're entering a new stage. Now the question is whether there can be a political coalition that emerges from the ruins that could establish itself and establish legitimacy without the promise of endless growth, either in terms of markets and militarism, is an open question. I think you know maybe we're just in a permanent state of disequilibrium. 
we've got just a few minutes left, and there's so many themes in this book that I highly recommend people read the whole book. It's called The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. One of the themes I, I noticed was how much of this frontier and border violence uh, is is not governmental, but is going beyond the law. I mean, there were videos uh, this week of vigilante groups down on the southern border of the United States uh, rounding up imprisoning people uh, outside of uh, of government decree. And, and this was part of the history of the United States expansion across the continent. Is, is that always going to be with us? Well, I mean, I think it'll be with us for quite a while. I think the border is a problem that, that, that has, has yet, or that a solution has, has yet appeared. I mean, one of the arguments of the book is that the frontier is always at the same time the border, but it's after the it's after the Mexican-American War that it that this is a delinking. The border becomes established, and the frontier continues to move forward. And what makes the U.S.-Mexican border different than other borders is that it's it's the principal axis in which North American capital is organized around. Not just any other border. It it has a foundational role in. In labor markets and, and 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 capital markets and commodity markets that um that 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 it, it, that I don't I mean short of going back to the way it was a century ago where there was a free flow of people and seasonal migration and uh, then I, I I don't I don't know if there's any if there's any any way out but uh, certainly within the terms of domestic politics. I'm, I'm a little pessimistic. What well, what would be other than the difficulty of getting there? What would be wrong with uh, getting there to to open borders? Nothing. I mean, morally, I think that's. I mean, I think that if you free you free commodities and free capital. Uh, I was just talking in political terms. Sure. I think if, if you free capital, if you, I mean, the whole point of NAFTA, and this is one of the things that why Trump's wall is important, not just as a symbol of Trump's racism and race realism, but it's a symbol of the hypocrisy of the of the establishment that he railed against and and defeated. Is that you know NAFTA was the grand crown jewel of economic integration, that high moment of globalization, and what did NAFTA do? NAFTA freed capital and it freed commodities, uh, but it immobilized labor. NAFTA needs to be understood as going hand in hand with Clinton's militarization of the border. And, 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 and that was the whole point, that Mexico's comparative advantage within the North American system was that was cheap labor. And, 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 and you can't have cheap labor and, and, and mobile labor at the same time. So, so, so NAFTA was founded on the idea of, um, of of militarizing the border and and that was the that was the high point of that so so i think that we need to take seriously the hypocrisy of of the of the previous order not romanticize it and imagine what a new a new arrangement would look like and and uh, you know i think eventually moving towards open borders is both the moral and and practical solution and the only the only one who pretended to be against nafta was of course trump right <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
We have been speaking with Greg Grandin. Uh, His latest book, again, is The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Uh, Highly recommend it. I listened to the audio book. It it was excellent, but uh, take your choice of mediums. Uh, Greg Grandin is a professor at NYU and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Greg Grandin, thank you very, very much for taking the time to come on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. It was a wonderful conversation. It was a pleasure to be here. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a non-profit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.